When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hello, and welcome to Gone Medieval. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman. A huge question in early medieval history and archaeology is what actually happened in Britain after the fall of Rome. The traditional narrative told to us by people like the Venerable Bede is that Germanic invaders, Angles, Saxons and Jutes, invaded and took over. But what really happened in those next few centuries? How did people adapt to their new lives? How were new identities formed and eventually kingdoms? And how and when did people adapt Christianity? So my guest on the podcast today is historian Professor Robin Fleming from the History Department at Boston College. Welcome to Gone Medieval and thanks for joining me today, Robin. Thanks very much for having me. So you're the author of a number of books on the early medieval period, including your most recent book called The Material Fall of Roman Britain, and what's going to be the topic of today's conversation, which is a book called Britain After Rome, The Fall and Rise of the Middle Ages. So I think I'm going to focus on the first few centuries of that period today. And there's a key theme in your books, which is very much on the evidence that we can get from material culture in this period. So objects and and artefacts that people leave behind. Why do you think that's so important, and especially in this particular time period? I think it's important for a couple of reasons. One is because people who are interested in the early Middle Ages the way I am, if they're historians, generally only have access to the lives of elites. So all of our written material was provided to us by elite males, mostly. I mean, we have a few elite women who are right as well. But most of the stuff that we have is from an elite viewpoint. And it's filtered through a monastic lens because almost everything we have is written by professional religious. So if you're interested in the bottom 95%, the way I am, you actually have to use material culture. But I also think there are other reasons for using material culture. I'm a historian, which means that I'm as interested in my present moment and how my present moment impacts the way I write history as I am in the past itself. And we're living in a period where we're hyper aware of how much the things in our lives actually make us us and how the things in our lives actually do things to us that sometimes we have no control over. So, for example, I don't know about you, but I am completely bossed around by my cell phone and it makes me do things I don't want to do. It it calls for my attention all the time. 
And I don't have any control over that. And then there's petroleum, right? It's damaging the climate. It's changing the way we're living. I put it in my car and yet it has this kind of afterlife. And so living in this period that we live in where we're hyper aware that the things in our lives make us do things we don't necessarily want to do, I think it's interesting to look at the past as well and see how past things made people live the way they did. That's an excellent answer. I hadn't really quite thought of it in the same way, but that's fantastic. And of course, when we look at these first few centuries after the end of Roman Britain as well, traditionally, the written narratives have been given a centre stage of attention. And I think for a long time, there's been a tendency to take those as gospel and take those as the truth. And I'm thinking especially now on the narratives on Anglo-Saxon arrivals or the invasions, which still are being taught in schools, certainly in England, as very uncritically. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that and about what the material culture is saying about that same situation. But I wonder, could you sort of recap for our listeners, what are those narratives that we've heard about with sort of coming on the Anglo-Saxons? I think the chief story is that Rome collapses in Britain and then groups particularly of men, high-status men, come over and they conquer bits and pieces of territory. So this is idea of a kind of political takeover of the former Roman province. And this is used to be supported by examinations of material culture because we read the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and the Venerable Bede who tell us of these events. And then we looked at a new style material culture that is developing in lowland Britain in the 5th, 6th, and 7th centuries and say, oh, that must be from these conquering people from the continent. But if you think about what happened to Britain before Rome collapsed, what you can see is that people living in Rome were highly dependent on material culture that was made in particular ways and they could be made because of the ways Roman society and the Roman economy were set up. When Rome collapses, many of the things that allowed for the production of things like pottery collapse as well. And so there was no pottery to be had that was Roman style. So people have to start making new pottery. So some of that new pottery is made by people who are coming over from the continent, but some of that new pottery is being made by people whose families had lived there all along. And so we use the kind of narratives that we find in written sources, or we used to, to explain the archaeology, which is a very bad idea. So I think that we have to think very hard about what it means to live through a period of material collapse and then think about all that material, the new material that's coming, and decide whether it's really ethnic or it's just the kind of thing that people in the fifth century made who were living in the particular world they were. One of the points you you made in your book that I quite liked is that you mentioned that you have some people uh, living in this point in between. So they've seen, they've been part of, or maybe their parents or their grandparents have been part of that, having all the access to that. And then suddenly they are in this new, new period. And I guess that's exactly what you're talking about here, isn't it? That you have these people who have experienced that past and now they need to sort of continue. And is that what we're seeing uh, an initial reaction to, do you think? That's, I think, exactly what we're seeing. And I think we're seeing a common of a lot of people are moving. Of course, a lot of people moved in the Roman period as well, but a lot of people are moving around both internally within Britain and from the continent. So you have newcomers sort of making things for themselves and you have people who've been there all along making for themselves and they're learning from one another. But if you think about the kind of things that they have to do to accommodate not having their old things and having to make new things, if you think about Roman pottery, one of the things that Roman pottery is very good at is it's very good at heat shock. 
And because it's kiln fired and the temperatures that it can withstand are really high. And so people in the late Roman period, for example, ate a lot of stew. You could put your pot on the hearth and it could cook stew for you very well. But the new style pottery that's handmade and that's not kiln fired isn't heat resistant in the same way. So both newcomers and the people who've been there all along have to develop new kinds of cooking habits, new food ways because of this change in material culture. So I mean, you think about that, those generations in between who could remember or had family memories of what it was like in the Roman period. And it must have been quite different, even if you were living down on the farm. Yeah, and I think that's such a good point that it has an impact on other things as well. There's that knock-on effect. Like, you know, when we were in the pandemic and we were in lockdown, we sort of had to start doing things in different ways. And that had knock-on effects on our, our jobs and so many things, didn't it? So I guess it's the same. That's exactly right. Yeah. So it's not just about, oh, they've got new pots or they've got new brooches, but it's a whole cascade of things. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing that's quite clear that you also write about is the regionality, because we can't really treat this whole part of Britain in the same way. And there are some clear regionalities happening as well, aren't there, in terms of the material culture and the artefacts? Well, and especially in this very early period. So by the time the late 6th, early 7th century rolls around, elites are beginning to have a kind of shared material culture. They're sharing language. They're obviously sharing kind of life ways and practices of the way they live in their houses and what kind of houses they live in. But in the early period, every community is just making it up as they go along. And each place must have been very different as they kind of all work things out. What they do depends on what skills are left within their community and what old Roman material culture they have as well. So if you happen to be in a place where a lot of Roman pottery was made, maybe a few people still know how to make pots in old-fashioned ways. Or you can go to waster heaps and you can pick through and you can find usable pots so you can recycle those pots. But if you're living in a place where pottery wasn't made, maybe you have to go over to wooden trenchers and leather and that sort of thing. And so each community is kind of working it out for themselves for a 50, 60, 70 years until it kind of shakes out. And in terms of the content, you already mentioned people do travel and people move around a lot, which I think is something that we we tend to forget. We tend to think that people stayed put in the past a lot more than than they really did. How much contact do we actually see across the North Sea? Can we actually tell how much they're trading and how much people are moving in and out in this earliest period? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it depends on how early you go. So as you know, I'm sure there's not much material culture from the fifth century, or it's very hard to date that material culture. And so we don't have very much of it. And we have more as time goes along. And it's clear that in the Roman period, Britain was attached in all sorts of ways to Gaul and then to Spain and then to this Mediterranean world. And a lot of their ideas and material cultures and a lot of people were coming up through the kind of Roman networks of travel and uh, sea, sea travel and road travel and coming into Britain. And so Britain is joined in a large culture zone that is the Roman Empire. When Rome collapses and Britain falls out of the Roman Empire and places along the North Sea are also falling out of the Roman Empire at the same time, a new kind of zone develops between Britain and sort of more northerly parts. So the Netherlands, Flanders, the kind of lowland areas, and then up into Scandinavia. And so we do know that more and more people and more and more ideas are coming from those places in the 5th, 6th, and 7th centuries than they had been in the Roman period. But it's hard to see how intense the movement was. And I think we won't know until we have a lot more data on ancient DNA. 
And with the work on ancient DNA, I think gradually we'll get an idea of whether there are few people in some places and a lot of people in others, or if there were a lot of people everywhere or not very many people. But we won't really know that, I think, for another 10 years or so. That's been quite a controversial debate, hasn't it, that you've had different sides of that, where some have said there's a complete population replacement and others have said, no, no, absolutely, hardly any people came across. And is that still the case now or is there more agreement? I think so. I, oh, I think there's going to be disagreement for a long time, and I think it really has to shake itself out. But I think that initially when people were using modern DNA and comparing it with the ancient DNA, they were finding quite different things than people who are just looking at ancient DNA and comparing it with other populations of ancient DNA. But a conference that I was just at, I mean, the people are of quite different minds of how much uh, movement there was going on and how much uh, migration there is. And so... But what I would say is that it's very important for historians and archaeologists to be in on the conversations and designs of the future ADNA projects, because the scientists are very, very good at what they do, but they don't know anything about history. And they often tend to take their findings and sort of paste them on to 1930s ideas about the ways in which ethnicity is somehow genetic, which it's not because it's socially constructed. And so we're going to fight about it for a long time, I think. Yes, I think that's a very, very good point. Absolutely. So one of the interesting things, I think you've already mentioned that we start to get these local identities out of necessity and, you know, practicality and all of that. But then at some point, these start to form bigger regional identities. How does that process come about? Well, it seems to me that the kinds of identities that begin to form in England are the kinds of identities that are encouraged once you get elites. And I think that, I mean, it's it's something that historian called Peter Sawyer said about 40 years ago, but people don't make kings, kings make people. You know, I think that you get this uh, when you get elites saying, we're special, we're different, we're all in this together. I think you begin to get this formation of these kind of local kingdoms and local kingdom identities. So I think it is a top-down thing, not a bottom-up thing. And so this is, of course, the time where we start to see some of the big, very rich burials, so things like Sutton Who. So is burial a particular way that you would go about expressing these identities and, and things and the stratification? Yeah, I mean, I think burial is a really interesting to trace the way burial changes over time. So in the late 5th and early 6th centuries, lots of people have grave goods. Uh, Women tend to have more grave goods than men. But as we move forward in time, fewer people get grave goods and a few people get more grave goods. And finally, by the time you're in the 7th century, there are some very, very, very fancy graves and many fewer people have grave goods. Yeah, so it sort of goes a little bit hand in hand, but I, I think we haven't really quite worked out why or how or the the full significance of that, have we? Well, and I think we have to think, I mean, what we have left is the burial, which is underground and you can't, I mean, you can put a burial mound over it or whatever, but you can't see it for very long. But the funerals that were behind these things must have been very important in making both elite identity and making sure that the old man's heirs get to be the new big guy. And so that part is very, very hard to see, but it probably was more important than what actually went into the burial. So we're just seeing shadows of what's important, I think. Yeah, I think that's such a good point because we will never know exactly what we're on. We can sort of try and reconstruct that. But I think those points in time where you go from one leader to the next is always a time of, of a lot of tension and 
possibly fear and, and you know there's all the the tensions between those families but also in the local community you know what's going to happen are they going to be safe are they going to be we're just changing prime ministers in in, in England at the moment <laughs> oh I thought, I thought you didn't quite have one right now um, no, no, um, you know it's, it's a sort of you, you never know what the next one's going to be like so it's a, I guess it's that situation of tension as well isn't it and so those moments in time were probably quite significant for so many different reasons right and I, I mean when you move forward in time when there's a period in which primogenitor is practiced in England and the eldest son gets everything. Even then there was a lot of tension and uncertainty about who gets to inherit. But in this period, there's no primogenitor at all. And so all the kind of athletes are there and the neighboring kings are there all kind of jockeying for position. And so it's a quite, people are lucky if they have very long lived kings who manage to keep it together because that seems to be one of the keys to success of these early medieval kingdoms. of a tyrant really was Julius Caesar? Would we have ever stood a chance against the first dinosaurs? And did Helen of Troy really have the power to launch a thousand ships? Well, you can expect all of this and more from the ancients on History Hit. Join us twice a week, every week, as we explore some of the greatest moments of our ancient past. Subscribe to The Ancients wherever you get your podcasts. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And the next thing I wanted to talk about in this period, of course, is uh, conversion to Christianity. So these serials and, and these people we're talking about up to now are presumably pagan. But was 
Christianity, did it persist at all at the end of the Roman period or did it sort of go with, with the Romans? Depends on where you are. So the West of Britain never has to be converted to Christianity because they get their Christianity from the Roman period. It's hard to know how Christian people were in the fourth century when Rome was still a force in Britain. It becomes important for elites to be Christians in that period. And yet there's massive evidence for the continuation of animal sacrifice, for the continuation of temple complexes. And so we just don't know how Christian people were in the fourth century, especially down on the farm. But the fact that Britain maintains a level of Christianity and everybody in the countryside Christianizes suggests to me that it, it becomes an important identity marker for Western communities in the way that it's not in Eastern communities in the fifth and early sixth centuries. So I think it does depend on where you are. And there are hints in Bede that Bede finds some people in Kent who are have a little shrine to a local saint, but they don't really know who he is and what he did. And the Pope says, shut it down. <laughs> it's not good. It's, and better they be pagans than they be heretics. So, yeah. yeah. And then... Do we have a good sense of how the conversion process takes place in the rest of the country, or is it quite a gradual thing? I mean, it's interesting. We have a very good idea of the fundamentals of conversion in aristocratic households, and we know how that works, and we know how it works among the big people. It's very, very hard to see how it works lower down the social scale. And, you know, there are these hints in, so Theodore of Tarsus, who's a Greek who comes over and he becomes the Archbishop of Canterbury. He got his Christianity the old-fashioned way, which is he was born within Roman territory. And so he's a good old-fashioned Roman Empire Christian. And he talks a lot in his writings about how you have to be nice to people who are making little sacrifices. Don't punish them too much. It's not really such a terrible thing. And so there's these hints that people really are doing a lot of kind of old-fashioned practices that would not be considered kosher in Christian communities in the Roman Empire. But a lot of it is tolerated, although some of it isn't. So they're very against horse eating and horse sacrifice. So that must have been something that they found problematic and maybe too public. But they're also very against women being ritual specialists. And so Theodore, for example, says, if women are putting their daughters in ovens to cure fevers, you got to shut it down. So there are some practices they're able to tolerate in rural communities and some practices they're not. And then later on, we start to get the rise of the monastic communities. And at what point does that happen? And when does that really become a huge part of society? Well, I mean, they're quite different kinds of monastic communities in the earlier periods, so say in 7th and 8th centuries, and then in the later periods, say the 10th century. The later monasteries are these kind of big Benedictine, well-organized communities with lots and lots of land. The earlier communities have lots of land as well. Their holdings tend not to be as spread out. They tend to be more kind of associated with local kingdoms, and they're more, they're more locally focused than later communities. But, if, you know, if you're living near a monastic community or if you're a farm family farming on monastic land, you must have lots and lots to do with the monastic community. And they must really affect the way you understand Christianity and you practice Christianity. If you're a long ways from one of those places, they don't have any impact at all. Yeah. So it's, it's literally how your local connection, I suppose, to any of those is what matters the most. Right. And there's no parishes. So pastoral care is being administrated a lot by these early monastic communities. But 
they have big baggy territories and their monasteries aren't everywhere. And so there's lots of people who fall through the cracks. And so, I mean, something that's that's part of that as well, I suppose, is the fact that we are talking about a very rural country. People are not living in big cities. In fact, that's one of the big changes. Well, I think even in the Roman period, it's only technically quite a small proportion, isn't there, of of people were actually living in cities, even though there were a few of them. So, but then we have those cities disappearing more or less completely. Completely, yeah. yeah. So nobody's really living in towns until the sort of, I guess, 7th century onwards. Is that when we start to see the first towns appearing again? Yeah, we get these informal trading communities that are seasonal, and then some of them become more permanent, and some of them, I mean, there's some of them go away in the troubles of the eight centuries. And then there are a bunch of towns that are purposely founded, many of them in places where Roman walls are still standing. So those places also become urban. But you see the first kind of hints of these places where people are making at least an important part of their living through trade in the seventh century. And then some of these become what's then later known as wicks or emporia, if you want to use that terminology. Yeah. And they're part of a bigger network, in a way, uh, that goes across the North Sea. Um, Can you say a little bit about those? Because I find those such a fascinating part of, of this history. Yeah, there's clearly these networks of traders that run all the way from Norway down through Scandinavia and, you know, the Baltic, along the kind of lowlands. And lowland Britain is part of this. And even into, I have a graduate student working on trading communities in Ireland as well, these early trading communities. So Ireland is part of this as well. And it's quite informal. I mean, these trading spaces are regulated in some ways by kings, which is one of the ways that kings make, become wealthy and get power. But so they're places where people are quite protected in their trade and they're not going to be robbed. But otherwise, they're pretty informal. And a lot of them don't have the kinds of infrastructure that you would need for year-round communities. So they're quick and dirty places, but people come year after year to make things and trade things. And they're coming from all over this kind of North Sea, British Isles and Ireland world. And they're quite, they must have been polyglot and, you know, multicultural. They must have been quite interesting places, but they're tiny. And do we know, I mean, you sort of mentioned that we have these kings and these local rulers, but they're not really founding them. Are they controlling them? Are they taxing people coming in and out? Do we know anything about that? So it used to be thought that kings were responsible for everything. And so it was thought that kings actually, uh, these communities were set up by kings so they could get their hands on luxury goods and they could have a kind of monopoly on it. And then they could give these luxury goods out and then people would be loyal to them. And we now think that the kings come in, or at least I think the kings come in later and take things over when the system is up and running. And there's lots and lots of evidence that pretty local people who had the wherewithal to get a boat together would row across the channel and get a bunch of trade goods and they would row back and go to these communities. You don't have to be a big gun to participate in the system. And there's lots of evidence from this period for log boats in England, for example, lots of them have been found. So clearly people were sort of rowing themselves to these trading communities to trade things that they had. And there are lots of people in in Kent that are being buried with boat strikes. So bits and pieces of boats go into their grave because that's an important part of their identity or the identity of the people burying them. 
And that, again, suggests to me that you don't have to be a king to be involved in this trade. You could be a local guy with a boat. And that's maybe the way that many people in Kent who look very rich in this period are getting the wherewithal to have these fancy grave goods that we find in cemeteries in Kent. And what about money and payment systems in this period? Do we have coins on a large scale or is that something that comes in a bit later? There are coins. I mean, there are these little, these shatters, these little ugly little plugs of metal that, I mean, they're small, so they must be useful in exchange, but they're so small that people lose them a lot. So we find them a lot. So they don't seem to be the best way to keep your wealth together. And we don't find the kind of standard English currency of the penny until later. And this is a case, I think, where we can see that coins, they're useful for trade, but what they're really useful for is for tax. And so kings, once we hit, you know, off of Mercia and Alfred the Great, they're very interested in getting coins into the hands of people so that when taxes are due, they can take some of those coins out of the hands of people. So I think the coinage comes in a little bit with trade, but I think it's really a kind of mechanism to tax. And so the big monetized economy happens a little later. So if we go then to that point, say 8th century onwards, that's when we start to get these really large kingdoms that we recognize, Mercia and Wessex and and all of these. What do you think has changed? What what sort of changes for those to form on such a, a big scale, do you think? Well, I think money is one thing that's very, very important. And this idea that kings have the right to tax. So, for example, it looks like off of Mercy is making a lot of money from the salt trade in London. That's a good way to make money, and it doesn't require any bloodshed, right? It doesn't require the risk of warfare. And so I think that kind of ability to tax is really important. But by that time, they've fully embraced the churchmen in their ear saying, you need to write things down. You need to have written administration. You need to keep records. And once you have a kind of written administration, you can grow larger and you can keep track of things better. And so I think both the money economy and I think sort of writing as a tool of government are really critical. And do you think if you think about, so you talked about at the beginning about these 95%, the, the people that we, we've not, the people like you and me, the people that aren't written down, written about, and the, not the kings and the rulers. Do you think that there was a big difference in their lives if you were living in the 9th century or in the 5th century? Was everyday life for most people in Britain, was it considerably different, do you think? Well, I do think it was considerably different. So I think that there's this kind of idea, thinking about the Roman period for a minute, there's this idea that when Rome falls, the only people who notice are elites, but everybody else just goes on with their lives. But I think when Rome falls, local peasants don't have to pay taxes anymore. And I think that's a kind of noticeable difference in their lives. And so I think in the 5th century and in the 6th century, you have a fairly flat hierarchy. So you have a ranked society where some people in your community have more and some have less, but you don't have this very steep hierarchy the way you get as you move forward in time. By the 10th century, if you're a peasant, I think you have less than the kind of farm families had control of in their lives in the 5th century. You have to pay taxes. You have to offer so much farming service to your landlords, which you might not have had to do in the 5th and 6th century. So I do think There are differences in the lives of the bottom 95%.
And plus, the material culture has changed. So once again, they're living different lives because their things are making them do different things than the things in the fifth century did. Absolutely. As we were saying earlier on, that's going to have an impact on all those things we can't see, like cooking methods and other sort of social things, things in people's lives that aren't necessarily leaving a trace, I suppose. Right. No, that's right. So... You talked a little bit earlier, just to sort of round up, because I think there's a really nice overlook. I could quite easily talk to you about this next half of your book as well, but that's going to be, have to be an, an entirely different episode. <laughs> but just sort of up to this point, I suppose, when we start getting the Vikings come in, we start to get sort of quite a different setting. But I did want to ask you, you mentioned earlier that things like ancient DNA is going to hopefully come in much more and give us some new answers. But do you think that now, in 2022, do we have quite a different understanding of this time period than we did 30, 40 years ago? Or are we still more or less in the same place? Oh, I think we have a much different view. So when I was an undergraduate, I spent a year at the University of London. And all I did was read Bede in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and Anglo-Saxon Charters. And that kind of world that I learned about is now quite transformed. And I think that there are many more people in the histories that are being written today. I think that there's much more interest in really interrogating those written sources and saying, why were they written the way they are? And who was behind that particular viewpoint? And how might we kind of read against the grain? And so I I think it's changed a lot. And I think that it's been a particularly important time for archaeology because of all the development that's happened in Britain and because of the portable antiquity scheme, which is extremely, extremely important. And I think it's given us a much different view of all sorts of things than we had 30 or 40 years ago. Fantastic. Well, I would absolutely recommend our listeners to pick up one of Robin's books. So the one we were talking about today, really the context of that, the early part of their Britain after Rome, The Fall and Rise of the Middle Ages, or her most recent book, The Material Fall of Roman Britain. Very readable, very understandable, very sort of sensible and engaging uh, accounts of this particular time period. But Robin, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast and sharing all that knowledge with uh, our listeners today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. So this brings us to the end of this episode of Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Dr Kat Jarman. Do please remember to subscribe if you haven't already and you can also subscribe to our Medieval Mondays newsletter. Just look in the episode notes for how to do that and I hope you will join us again. Our next episode with my co-host Matt Lewis is on Saturday and I will be back again next Tuesday. Thank you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gone Medieval. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out and you'll be doing me a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code MEDIEVAL 
at checkout.